Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Hello, listeners. It's Nicole Giantonio, the founder of Left Foot. And I'm here to announce that our 12 audio-based business development challenges are now available. 12 practical, execution-oriented steps to predictable success. Part of the Left Foot GPS growth practice solutions for business development. Go to leftfoot.com GPS for details. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest is a corporate bank regulatory and finance attorney. He worked for a global law firm, a boutique firm, a powerful central bank, and a groundbreaking fintech company before starting the company he now leads. The CEO and founder of Alta Claro, Abdi Shayesta, welcome to Left Foot. Hi, Nicole. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to have you as a guest on our program, Abdi. Let's jump right into our questions. Which of your personal strengths or habits have allowed you to be successful in business? Well, that's a good question to start with. Nicole, I've always been passionate about learning and in particular passionate about experiential learning, where you're learning through doing, interaction, simulation, and experimentation. So when I read something, I immediately try to deploy and implement some of the things that I'm learning. I even take notes like an outline form that I can go back to when I'm reading something. That's how I really try to gain mastery in everything I do personally or professionally. And that's how I was when I was practicing law, you know, whether it was through reading a book, watching videos or contacting experts, whether it was an author of an article or author of a video, I sought their advice, sought their mentorship. Those who've down that path, as you know, provide the most invaluable experience and and insight to, to your road. So I've taken this and deployed it into my business building method. I constantly read books and watch videos to level up on my knowledge. And more importantly, I'm very grateful to have surrounded myself with amazing advisors who are experts in various disciplines that are relevant to my business. So for example, I have a chairman and um, advisor to my company who's big in data analytics. I also have an advisor who's a VP of marketing from LexisNexis, as well as an advisor who's a serial entrepreneur in the uh, two-sided marketplace because those are relevant to my business. And I consider that type of input invaluable. But the thing about their advice is that I come back to them after they've given it to me. And that's the the biggest gift you can give your mentors, your coaches, is feedback on their advice with real data. The second component is that you actually have to be willing to take the risk when you learn something to actually try it out like an experiment. Be a scientist and try to see if these new ways work for you rather than just reading it and saying, oh, that sounds good actually do it. I like both points in experimenting with the advice and taking that risk, that chance. And then also, of course, going back to your advisors. I'm quite certain most people don't go back and say, this is how it turned out. And and this is how I applied the advice that you gave. Very helpful. Have you had the opportunity to work with others, possibly team members, possibly folks that have come to you for advice? How have you guided those advice seekers, how have you guided them to apply the same principle? The biggest gift you can give to someone is your time, right? And for someone seeking your advice, what a valuable gift you can give them by sharing with them your knowledge, your insights from your own experience. But I don't just give the advice, I give the approach and methodologies that I use in terms of learning and deploying. So, I mean, that's an important part of it. I say, look, here's my advice, but that's my perspective. You should be creating a process for yourself where you're 
getting diverse views and implementing it and coming back to these people and letting them know you tried it because that's a gift you can give back to them. You know, the worst situation is when you give someone advice over and over again, it's the same advice and they don't listen to you, then it's just a waste of your time, right? And it's unfair to that person to keep coming back to them with the same problem. But if you say, no, you know what? I tried what you did and here are the results. Here's what I found. Here's how I'm adjusting it. Then it becomes a big opportunity for you because now you've brought on advisors into your process to find the right answer. And that's what I try to do when I give advice to others. I try to be a part of their process rather than just give them, here's the black and white answer. No, that's a great point. And it's interesting. I listen to a daily motivational type of speaker and he always talks about that. He said, you know, sitting there and just listening is not going to do it, right? You have to take action on that advice. And he does constantly ask for feedback. And I can say many of us, and I've started doing it myself, I basically say, hey, how am I going to apply this advice? And then what the result is. So great points for our listeners. And Abdi, as you know, our listeners are lawyers. They're tuning in to hear about business development, client retention, creating value with their clients. As a former lawyer and someone who's practiced and had to go out and secure business, and now as a business leader and entrepreneur, what recommendations would you have for lawyers when they're preparing a growth strategy? What is that plan? What advice would you have for those lawyers? No, excellent question. So during the 15 years I was a practitioner, half of it, I was a seller of legal services and half of it, I was a buyer of legal services, right? As as in-house counsel, that's what you are. So I really appreciate being on both ends. And I would say that one of the most important things for your growth strategies for your practice is to find out how to get in front of the right audience, get very strategic about it and become very surgical about it. Here's what I mean. Whether you're writing an article, attending a networking event, presenting at a CLE event, whatever it is, you know, the question to ask is, are you getting in front of the right audience? Before you even engage in any of these activities, you have to spend time developing a strategy. And it's not just, well, yeah, I practice IP law and I got to go after the companies in the following industry. No, let's get granular. You know, what are those companies and what are the types of companies that are relevant to what you know? What stages are those companies? Where are they located? Who are their decision makers? Where do those decision makers live, hang out professionally or socially? And what's your plan to get there, not just physically, but virtually? So for example, lawyers write scholarly articles, right? I've seen this over and over again, and they're published in law journals. Well, great. That's another great check mark on your resume. But does your potential client, a CEO of a prospective client company, right, that you're trying to get in front of, do they actually read that journal? No. What journals are they reading? And are you writing articles, right, that relevant in their language for them to understand that intrigues them to contact you, right? Or if you're presenting at a CLE event, right, which I used to do, if it's at a bar association or any other provider, what does that membership look like for that association, for example? Or, you know, and is that membership very relevant for what you're trying to achieve? Are they just solo practitioners? And maybe that's good for what you're trying to achieve to network with. Or are they in-house lawyers, which is what you may also be trying to target? And you should ask for the profiles of their membership and get an understanding of you know, who among that membership attends those events. And if there are no in-house counsel you know, uh, members at the events that you're planning to speak at, then it's not worth your time unfortunately, right? This time is limited. And even in networking, right? You know, don't just go to an event and hang out with the people you know, your buddies. And is that event even relevant if it's just a bunch of lawyers that are, you know, oh, all fellow IP lawyers just like you? Well, is that necessary to achieve your growth strategy? So in going into the new year, I would spend a lot of time strategizing, getting very granular and surgical with your strategy. 
and then deploying tactics to getting in front of that, that audience virtually and physically. We do talk a lot about creating a niche or establishing a niche for yourself, going out and adding value in that niche. And that's definitely the takeaway that I heard that idea of going to events that are an industry focus where you're going to be one of few lawyers, if not the only lawyer versus basically events that are all lawyers, which I think is the first step a lot of lawyers take. When they go out to market, they say, I'm going to go to events with other lawyers. And of course, some practices, that's you know how they build that practice is referrals. But that idea of getting into a niche or to an industry and being very focused and providing some value add or some valuable content. And, I, and thank you for talking about networking, because I absolutely agree. I'm a big proponent that when you go to networking events, it, you know, which of course, many lawyers don't like doing, right? But when they get there, they do tend to speak to the folks that they know and not expand and, and go out and talk to others. So great advice on that point. You know, are there some things that you know now that you didn't know back when you were starting out about networking that really has made a difference for you? You know, things that you have started to do in now that you're an entrepreneur, now that you're more established, that if you had known about them, you know, 15 years ago, you would have done. Absolutely. I think this is a good follow on from the last question, because, yes, all of those things that we mentioned are, you know, are important. But you also have to be authentic in what you're doing. And so if going to an event causes you to sit in the corner and hold your glass of water or end up talking to one person, right? Then you have to recognize, which is what I did early on, was that, you know, I'm an introvert, believe it or not. And my interactions are more powerful when it's in one-on-one or small group environments, rather than going into these large, you know, cocktail hours, which are fun, I get it. But, you know, I would only come home with one or two business cards, which isn't bad because it's quality over quantity. But at the end of the day, was it the best use of my time? And so that's one thing I would say is to find things to do that are authentic to you. Along those lines, are you connecting with people for the right reasons? You know, for example, as a seller of legal services, you're on the firm side or a service provider side. You want to eventually, you know, create a client development relationship. You want to get their business. But what are you giving to them that's of value, right? And, and you may think, well, geez, I, I don't have anything. Yes, you have a lot that you can offer, and that's knowledge. Sharing your knowledge and helping them to, you know, whoever it is on the other side, whether it's in-house counsel or an executive decision maker, is an authentic way to create a relationship, sharing your knowledge with them. And first of all, it allows them to assess your expertise. Yes. But more importantly, if you're interacting with them, they get to assess your likability. And if you're able to do something with them, even if it's in a short-term framework, like, hey, you know, I'll take a look at your document and give you feedback. Now you're collaborating with them. And that collaboration opportunity, small investment of your time, but that allows them to assess the chemistry you have with them. And as a buyer of legal services, those were the three things that I looked at when I hired an outside lawyer. Yes, expertise, check. Likeability, check. Chemistry. Chemistry was the most important part. Am I going to get along with this person? Are we going to be able to communicate? And yeah, chemistry, you can assess socially at social gatherings, but the real chemistry you're looking for is the collaboration. And that can only be engaged through interaction with them. No, great point. And I really appreciated how you moved that response from getting out and networking to adding value to collaborating. And that idea that you can do that as a way to have the client see if there is that connection, to see if there is value. And of course, your you know, first point that you have the credibility and the you know you have the background right to address the matter. So those are all 
great approaches. And again, I think, you know, that idea of collaboration, because once you start collaborating, it's almost as if they hired you, right? Even if they haven't hired you yet, which I think if you're on the client side that you've hired that lawyer because they're providing value. So great points. Did you have a success story where you can talk about either how that has worked for you, that method, or maybe another method that you feel is a strong one? I was very grateful to have had you know, entrepreneurial experiences before I became a lawyer, clothing company in college that helped finance my education. And then when I went to law school and graduated, I became a good lawyer because I understood what it was like to be an entrepreneur. In fact, I was a lawyer for entrepreneurs for many years. And I think that that helped me in a variety of settings, whether it was representing entrepreneurs, I understood the business, the business needs. But even when I was in a large corporate setting, the ability to maneuver and break through silos and to be able to you know, meet with different stakeholders and bring them on board for a decision was like a selling process that I encountered when I was in college, when I was selling to campus events and university organizations on how to buy my, you know, getting them engaged to buy my product or something. <laughs> so I think, you know, as a lawyer, you have to tap into those personal skills. It's not just about black and white, here's your answer, but try to get an understanding of the culture inside that you're working with. Try to get a connection with the stakeholders so that you can round up people around the decision, especially if you're representing a large conglomerate. You have to understand that, that there's a landscape you have to deal with. Great points. And now a word from our sponsor, Nicole here, and a shout out and thank you for tuning in to the Left Foot Podcast. Are you looking to energize your business development efforts? Our 12 Left Foot Business Development Challenges will energize your efforts in three areas. Business Development Grit, tactical habits that lead to business development success, including networking, nailing your niche, how to focus and develop an expert reputation, commercial savoir-faire, a discussion on business and the revenue side of law. At Left Foot, we believe 20% of people are natural at business development, 10% say no to business development, and 70% are neutral and can adopt the skills necessary when presented in an organized, methodical way. To learn more and be challenged, go to the GPS page at leftfoot.com. You've been in a lot of different environments. You've worked for small companies, large companies, obviously in a large firm, in a boutique firm. A lot has changed. Your business today is working with lawyers to give them access to communities where they can collaborate, access to other, other lawyers, other legal professionals that they can ask questions of. In your work today, and of course, in your past experience, and is there a particular way that you feel as lawyers looking to grow their business, they should be responding to the changing market conditions? Great question. I have seen the shifts in the industry, as I'm sure your listeners are very well aware of, but the changes in law firm economics over the last decade impacting us in a big way. Clients are savvier. They're not paying for junior associates on their dime. They're scrutinizing their bills and asking for alternative arrangements. And there's a surplus of partners at firms, which you know breaks the leverage model. But on top of it, in-house lawyers are trying to rely less on outside firms and build their internal expertise, right? In this highly competitive landscape, it's been very difficult to manage business development while you're managing the other firm needs, billing and training and so forth. How can you get out and stay in front of prospective clients and existing clients, especially if those clients are very globalized as they are today? Decision makers are not in one place. Yeah, okay, you, maybe you, you fly out once or twice or maybe four times a year to Dubai or Hong Kong or Africa 
and you collect a bunch of business cards, but how do you stay in front of them afterwards? How do you become relevant after you leave their soil? And these are the challenges I know personally because I've experienced them and I, and I obviously know them from our clientele at, at our company. This is the type of issues that we're tackling with the offerings you mentioned. Luckily, if lawyers are savvy enough, there are technologies and technology solutions that can not only help you tackle these issues, but if they're used properly, they can set you apart from others. Okay. So let's talk about that. We mostly hear about technologies that a firm would purchase, e-discovery, artificial intelligence. There's a lot of tools like that out there. What I've read about your organization is what you're talking about are ways of communicating, ways of staying in front of a client, which to me would be video conferencing, the ability to use a HubSpot type product to be communicating regularly things outside of email, which lawyers are mostly comfortable with at this point. Let's talk about community building. And then you said something which is really interesting. If the lawyers are savvy enough to use the technology and the tools out there. I think this is a challenge. We have many lawyers that are practicing today that are not comfortable with the technology. So if you could comment on Again, are we talking about those communication vehicles? Even if there's something that you're doing today, you know, whether it's WhatsApp or some other communication vehicle that, you know, a listener would say, wow, I got to go out and learn this. What would that be? Happy to share examples that are very relevant to what we do, but also things that you can do on your own and with other providers. But the idea is this, that the advent of personalized learning has certainly taken off in other verticals. You see companies like Coursera or you know, Udemy, Udacity, the Khan Academy, right? Leveraging technology to deliver education in a personalized way. Now, the legal industry needs to take advantage of this. But what's more unique, the flip side of the coin of personalized learning is personalized marketing, personalized client development, if you really think about it. Leveraging technology and data to get in front of the right audience in the right time. There are things you can do on your own. Use of videos. If you open up LinkedIn, (laughs) as simple as LinkedIn, you see short bite-sized clips being used everywhere to communicate and present. Question is, why not use this as a medium for delivering short clips of you, demonstrating your expertise on a recent hot topic or a trend in your practice area? Using videos, of course, as a part of your profile and marketing strategy, they're not only demonstrating your expertise, as I've mentioned earlier, it's also demonstrating your likability. And if deployed in the right way, it keeps you in front of those existing clients and potential clients that are all over the world that will remind them, especially if you just did a presentation in Hong Kong and now you're back in New York, remind them, oh, geez, that was a great present. I got to contact this person. You just saw the three minute clip of you. And I'm telling you these stories and sharing them because they're real. They're happening. For example, a client of ours, partner at a firm is working on a strategy to penetrate the market in Africa. And we were doing a webcast with him. We have a four to six week buildup, promo clips and social media clips that the, the lawyer you know, shares their expertise, shares their personal story, and then, of course, promotes the webcast. And we disseminate this in various channels, including LinkedIn and so forth. Turns out he was on his way to Africa, an old classmate of his who wasn't even connected with him. And he was on his way to Nigeria. And she contacted him you know, through in-mail and said, I just saw your video. Where are you? Would love to see you. And, and she said, let's get together. I'm now GC of you know, XYZ company. And of course, lo and behold, the next day they got together and she brought the CEO of that company as well. And they had lunch. And that was an opportunity to connect. 
So this is a real story of leveraging digital content to get in front of others that you know and you don't know, especially when you're miles away. I think the videos are great. We've done some short clips recently and they're really getting a lot of views. And to that point, it has to be short. It took a while to get comfortable with that. And I think that's part of the challenge. Based on the research I've done, 53% of lawyers, if they're on social media or on LinkedIn, I think it's much higher than that. In-house counsel is all over LinkedIn and at all levels too. I mean, even general counsel of large organizations are on LinkedIn. But we still have a lot of lawyers that are not comfortable with that media. Getting on LinkedIn is one thing, but to be out there and posting videos, what would you say to the lawyer that is basically saying, that's not for me? Yeah, that is kind of my response too. You know, one thing that that incentivizes the lawyers that come onto our programs for webcasts is we bring on average 300 to 400 lawyers onto our any of our live webcast programs and 40% of that audience are in-house counsel or compliance professionals. And most of them saw these videos. Most of them logged in and signed up for the webcast through these videos. These digital video clips that are two minutes long, and it's first of all faster for you to do it than writing an article and publishing it in XYZ Journal, you know, can be more effective. It's about deploying it in the right channels. The technology is there where you can get very surgical and program the settings and say, look, I want this in front of, you know, Fortune 100 companies located in the following geographies and in the following industries and with the following types of people to start a client development opportunity through an earnest method of learning, leveraging technology, which all started through this whole process I mentioned with promo clips and story of the lawyer and the webcast and then the follow up private sessions and then now engagement. Now they have a relationship. We often hear a lot of concern from our clients about adding value and doing something that's tasteful and using technology can all be part of the same sentence. So let me ask this. I mean, so as you're out talking and getting folks comfortable with this methodology of using technology to promote their work through adding value and being educational, is there anything that is more unique to the global market that is different than here in the States. And and I'll give you an example. I mean, I've interviewed a partner, a Dorsey partner in Europe, and he actually does use WhatsApp to chat with his clients. I mean, what is unique about the environment outside of the US that might be something we could adopt here in the States that would make business development and connecting with other lawyers more effective? No, that's a great question. And this is what we discovered by accident. A significant portion of our user base comes from lawyers situated outside of the United States. Many of them are lawyers who came here and got their LLM and became licensed and went back to their home country. Many of them are just simply foreign lawyers that want access to U.S. lawyers or U.S. ways of doing transactions or practicing law to get a global perspective. And they are open to using technology in various forms. They fill out the profile right away. They follow the instructions. They download stuff. They don't have any issues. And so I think it's an opportunity for U.S. lawyers to tap into. So we have a generation of lawyers coming into the workforce that are comfortable with technology and are really pushing the envelope within their firms. And many of the associates that are coming into firms today are saying, why don't we have this ability or why can't we do it this way, which I think has been quite eye-opening for some of the folks that are actually making the decisions. That said, you know, what for that group of newer lawyers that are coming into the market and are really comfortable being global and being mobile, 
What advice would you have for them as they get into their careers and start looking to develop their networks, develop their client base? What advice would you give? First of all, if you're in that young generation, you're mobile and global, make sure you find the right fit that you're going to join an organization that is set up in a way where you get to contribute as well as learn, because that's the best way you're going to thrive. Otherwise, you're going to be frustrated. So for example, if you have all these ideas about how to go global and mobile, and you're working at a place that doesn't care about that, you're going to get frustrated very fast. Going back to all of these issues that we identified earlier about in-house counsel wanting to cut costs, well, geez, that means that they're willing and they're open to hiring experts that don't necessarily work at big law firm with a big overhead. If you are able to demonstrate you have the expertise and you're likable and there's chemistry and you're, you're mature enough, you should try to tackle those types of opportunities. And I think that you know, with opportunities to leverage technology to connect and network, you shouldn't just look in your backyard. You should try to look overseas for connecting with people for business development opportunities because you'll see a connectivity opportunity. I absolutely agree. And, and I think that can be done through involvement in organizations, involvement in your niche. A lawyer who I've become work friendly with, who's a younger lawyer, and she got involved in the music industry and then got involved in worldwide music organizations where she's able now to go and speak on her topic at different entities all over the world. She was interested in music and is a lawyer and is practicing and was able to build her client base for her law firm or her law practice through this other area of interest. Great point on finding the right organization to work for. Not all organizations are open to that. You've shared a lot of energy in our talk today. It's obvious that you've had a varied career of different roles. What do you enjoy most about the work that you do? I enjoy the team that we're building, the team of experts in which I rely on. You know, I am learning so much from my team. And that creates this room for growth to constantly develop and constantly come up with new ways of doing things around this central theme that I'm passionate about, right? As I mentioned in the beginning, I'm passionate about learning. I'm passionate about the share of knowledge between individuals and professionals. So that's the core. And every day I come to work, I have such dynamic, talented people working in our organization. They're coming up with things on their own. They're a heck of a lot smarter than I am. But then we're deploying it. And then we're seeing it make a change in someone's profession. Abdi, we appreciate you sharing your thoughts with our listeners. Any last points you'd like to share before we say goodbye? We talked about breaking out of the mold, getting out of the old fashioned way of doing things and experimenting, right? With all this advice people are listening to, try experimenting with it. Gather some data around it. You know, I've gone to so many firms and when I ask them about what do you do for business development or client development, they say, well, we hold these amazing wine parties. Hey, that's great. Wine parties for your existing clients. I'm sure that that makes them happy. But what are you doing to bring on new prospects and engage with new clientele? What are you doing there? Experiment with some new methods. Great point. I have to say we've interviewed many general counsel and the one thing they bring up often, almost every single time is thank you for the invitation because they almost feel obligated. Basically, you know, they like their lawyer. They like the the firm that they're working with, but they don't want to go. There has to be another way. So again, you know, a terrific last point. I agree with you. Breaking out of the mold should be the theme going into 2018. Abdi, thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot. Awesome. It's been a pleasure being here. Thank you for having me, Nicole. I've enjoyed your questions and the conversation was awesome. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. For information on our podcast, our 12-session business development challenge, and our online business development coursework, visit leftfoot.com. It takes focus and thought to lead with the left foot. Until next time.